139. Psalm 139. I'm sure most of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. For those of you who have not seen that movie or read that book, it's about four siblings who travel through a, a magical wardrobe into a foreign world unlike ours where there are giants, dwarves, centaurs, and talking animals. And in this world, they find themselves in the middle of a battle between good and evil. They join, they join the, the forces of good, led by the lion Aslan, against the evil white witch and all of her followers. The white witch has already cursed this world, causing an unending winter, and her desire is to take over this world and kill all of those who oppose her. So the story comes to this climactic battle at the end of the book or at the end of the movie where the two sides are looking at one another from across the battlefield. The white witch looks at her followers and she says, I have no interest in prisoners. Kill them all. And then in my favorite moment of the movie, the camera goes to Peter and he looks to his right-hand man, Aureus, and he asks, Are you with me? And Aureus responds, to the death. This battle, it serves as an allegory. The whole movie, the whole book, it serves as an allegory of the gospel message pointing to salvation in, in Christ. But this battle particularly, it serves as an allegory for the battle between Christians and the wicked world. In just a moment as we read and discuss what's honestly a difficult passage, a difficult portion uh, of this song that can be difficult to, to comprehend and, and receive, I want us to picture ourselves in this battle, on the battlefield, looking across the way at the enemies of God and those who are consequently enemies of us, those who want our demise, those who want for us to be killed. So with that mental picture, in mind, I invite you to stand with me as we read Psalm 139, verses 19 through 24 together. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God, O oh men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way of everlasting. May Jesus be big this morning. You may be seated. Over the last three weeks, as we've walked through Psalm 139, we have learned about God's omniscience, His omnipresence, and His omnipotence. We've learned that He doesn't just know everything, He knows everything about us. We learned that He isn't just everywhere, He is everywhere with us. And we learned that He isn't just able to do anything, He is able to do anything and everything for us. These attributes are not only amazing, they are also 
good. But they're only good because the God who possesses these attributes is holy. You see, if God was not holy, it would not be good that he knows everything. If he was not holy, it would not be good that he is everywhere. And if God was not holy, it certainly would not be good that he could do anything and everything. But God is holy. Therefore, his righteous acts, his all-powerful acts are good. For God to be holy, this is what holiness is. To be holy is to be completely separated from sin, number one. And number two, it is to be completely devoted to God's glory and God's honor. These two components, these two ingredients, maybe you'll think of it like that, these two ingredients of holiness, they cannot be separated from one another. To be separated from sin is to be devoted to God's glory and honor. And to be devoted to God's glory and honor is to be separated from sin. God is holy. He is perfectly holy. He is completely and perfectly separated from sin, and he is completely and perfectly devoted to his own glory and his own honor. Remember what God says in Isaiah 48:11, a verse that we look at often. He says, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. While God is loving towards those that he has created and he selflessly serves them, uh, most notably in, in his son Jesus Christ, he cannot share his glory with his creation. If he could, he would not be God. And if he could share his glory, he would not be worthy of our worship this morning. God is completely devoted to his own glory and he is completely separate from sin. And David worships him for this. He loves that God is holy. And so he prays to God uh, for, for, for him to uphold his own holiness. That's the request that David is making. He does not use the word holiness in the psalm, but that's very much the, the, the theme that is woven throughout these last six verses. While God's holiness is something that he cannot uh, change, it is something that cannot be taken away from him, it is something that he has to act on, something that he has to work to uphold. So this morning we're going to see that God upholds his holiness by separating himself from the wicked, separating the wicked from his people, and then finally separating his people from their sins. So the first thing we're going to look at this morning, the first point, and you can see these on the handout within your bulletin. The first point, God separates the wicked from himself. The first 18 verses of Psalm 139 that we have looked at over the last three weeks, they're some of the most comforting verses in all of the Bible. But in verse 19, David's tone changes so much so that it almost feels out of place or out of context. Beginning in verse 19 and following, you're not going to find these six verses on a Hallmark card, right? The former you will. They're verses that we love to recite. They're verses that we love to memorize. But these last six verses, they make us feel a little different because David's tone seems to, sh to, to change. He shifts from a spirit of adoration to what seems like a spirit of vengeance. But in reality, David is simply continuing his worship of God that he has been proclaiming all throughout the psalm. Just now he is praying for God to uphold his holiness by separating the wicked from himself. 
So he writes in verses 19 and 20, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Again, it's easy to find comfort in God's omniscience, especially when it is near to us. It's easy to find comfort in God's omnipresence when it is near to us. And it's easy to find comfort in God's omnipotence when it is near to us. But David also finds comfort in God's justice. What about you this morning? What about you? Whenever you read these final six verses of Psalm 139, do you find comfort in them? Or do you want to keep them at arm's arm's length, wanting them to stay away from you and your understanding of God? Do you find comfort in the justice of God? To do so, we have to have a right attitude towards God. We have to have a right understanding of the wicked. And we have to have an awareness of the battle that we are in. So the first, I guess, sub attitude towards God. We must acknowledge Him as our creator and as our sustainer. We must acknowledge Him as our judge, but also as our redeemer. We must acknowledge Him as the eternal King of the universe. We must acknowledge Him as the all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present, sovereign ruler of our lives. Personally, we must acknowledge Him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We must acknowledge Him as the only Holy One, as Revelation 15.5 says. But we can't just acknowledge Him as all of these things. We must also love Him, and we must worship Him, and we must pledge our loyalty to Him alone, which is exactly what David is doing in these uh, final six verses. Notice that in the psalm, David is not asking God to slay his enemies, that is, the, the enemies of David himself. He's asking God to slay his own enemies, those who oppose him. Why is he asking this? David is asking this because it is God's glory that he is concerned about. He is totally loyal to God and he does not want people opposing God's glory and opposing his righteous actions. It is God's holiness that he wants to see upheld. So again, I ask you this morning, what about you? Is your view of God so high that you desire to see Him separate Himself from His enemies? Is your view of God so high that you desire to see His holiness upheld? To be comforted by David's prayer, at least these final six verses, we must have a right attitude towards God Himself. Second, we must have a right understanding of the wicked. We must have a right understanding of the wicked. David says that the wicked are men of blood, and they speak against God with malicious intent, and they take his name in vain. Remember how God described the the wickedness of mankind in uh, Genesis 6, in verses 5 and 6. This is prior to uh, him sending the flood. God says, or excuse me, it says, "...the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth." and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. That's an accurate depiction 
of the wickedness of mankind, not only before the flood, but even still today. These people, they deserve the judgment that God sent to them. Later in Genesis, the men of Sodom were also described as wicked, great sinners against the Lord. That's how it described them word for word. And if you'll remember the the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and God uh, bringing its destruction to them, remember how they tried to break into the house of, of Lot and have their way with the angels because they were totally depraved. They were wicked to their core. And they too deserved the, the, the judgment that God sent to them as well. Think about those who crucified Jesus and the judgment that they deserve. Think about those who stoned Stephen for his faith and the judgment that they deserve. Think about those throughout history since the Bible's completion that have led genocides in human history. Think about those today who are killing Christians for their faith. Think about those today who are leading the charge to murder the unborn in great number. They're all deserving of God's judgment, of His punishment, right? We, we forget this sometimes because, I mean, admittedly, we live here in, in the, the belt buckle of the Bible belt right in the center where uh, persecution seems to be a foreign concept and we don't see it near us, at least in the ways that I just described from Scripture and from throughout history and from around the world today. But this is real stuff. This is the Word of God bearing truth about what has happened, bearing truth about what is still happening today. Therefore, we must long for justice. We must long for God to judge those who oppose Him to this degree. Also remember how God introduced Himself to Moses on Mount Sinai. He said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. We know that part well, don't we? Because those are the attributes of God that we like. Those are the ones that naturally bring us comfort. They're the ones that affect us most positively. But that's not all that God says about himself to Moses. He goes on to say, but who will by no means, by no means, clear the guilty? visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. To uphold His holiness and to uphold His justice, God cannot clear the guilty. If He did, He would not be holy. If He did, He would not be just. And if He did, He would not be God. He must punish the guilty. And though it might take some work on our part, we should find comfort in that because David finds comfort in that and God finds comfort and justice in that as well. To be comforted by David's prayer, we must have a right understanding of the wicked, the men of blood, those who take God's name in vain. Finally, as I was trying to to lead us to do in the, the introduction whenever I was Uh, leading us into the the illustration of the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, we must have an awareness of the battle that we are in. We often forget that we're living in the middle of a a spiritual battle for for the entirety of our lives. We're living in a, a spiritual war. Paul writes in Ephesians 6, 12, 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's the battle that we are up against. Even when we feel most secure, most comfortable, we are at war with the spiritual powers that are working against us. And more significantly, they're working against God, working to thwart His plans. Peter adds in 1 Peter 5.8 that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Satan is constantly at work against us, wanting to devour us, wanting to kill us, both in our earthly bodies. He's wanting our sin to lead us into destruction, but he's also wanting us to die eternally and spiritually. That is his desire desire for us. We are constantly at war with Satan and his army. And sometimes this war even becomes physical. In Psalm 42, uh, or excuse me, in Psalm 44, 22, the psalmist writes, Yet for your sake, for God's sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Again, here in the Bible Belt, in our, our comfortable Mississippi lives, we often forget that there are Christians throughout history and even today around the world who face this reality, who are being killed all the day long for their faith in God, for God's sake. This is a very true reality for them. So I want us this morning to continue, as I tried to lead us to do in the introduction, I want us to continue to view this passage from their shoes. And when we think about this passage, when we think about this prayer from David from their shoes, don't we want to see God bring justice to His enemies? Don't we want to see God enact His righteous judgment against them? David makes it clear that, uh, that it is the, the enemies of God that he desires to see slayed. But he also leaves the vengeance to God himself, right? He says, oh, that you would slay the wicked. Paul echoes this in Romans 12, 19. He says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That's another thing that can bring us comfort this morning, that the justice of God does not have to be enacted by us. God is a God who can enact His own wrath, and He does so, and He will do so against His enemies. God knows who His enemies are. That's another element. Uh, you know, as we look around the world today, we, we see unrighteous actions, uh, but we don't know exactly who the enemies of God are, those who will remain in their uh, depravity throughout the remainder of their lives. But God knows who His enemies are, and He will deal justly with them in due time. And we should pray for God to do just that. And we can trust that He will do that. Spurgeon, he, he says... Crimes committed before the face of the judge are not likely to go unpunished. God who sees all evil will slay all evil. Isn't that something that we see in you know, the, the man-made court system today? We, we, we just hope that the judge gets it right. We hope that enough evidence comes forth to, to, to pardon uh, someone who did not do wrong or to convict someone who did do wrong. 
but all crimes committed before God. He is the righteous judge, and He sees them all, and He will slay all evil. To uphold His holiness, God will separate the wicked from Himself. But God doesn't just separate the wicked from Himself, however. He he also separates them, He separates the wicked from His people. David goes on to write in verses 21 and 22, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. These verses, they can be difficult for us to to make sense of because we have it engraved in our minds that we are not supposed to hate period. We think about Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 43 and 44, where Jesus teaches his listeners. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But David isn't talking about his own enemies, those that have wronged him or done something that uh, done something to him that he did not like. He's talking about God's enemies. Did you catch what he said in verse 21? Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? David is first and foremost communicating his loyalty to God with these statements. Jesus, after he teaches for us to love our enemies, he goes on in the very next chapter, still in the Sermon on the Mount, he goes on to say, no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. While Jesus was talking about money in in this instance, that's what he was making that claim about, the, the principle is true for everything, right? We cannot serve two masters. We cannot have two gods. Either we will love God and hate the world and the wickedness in it, or we will love the world and the wickedness in it and hate God. Therefore, we must join in with David and hate the world, hate those who hate God. David makes it crystal clear whose side he is on. And he makes it crystal clear who his master is. Just like when Orius told Peter in uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, to the death, even as we go into battle, David says to God, I hate those who hate you, O God. I loathe those who rise up against you. And because they are your enemies, they are my enemies. That's his devotion to God. That is his loyalty to God. May it be said about us this morning as well. So I ask you once again, what about you? What about you? Are you so devoted to God that you hate those who rise up against Him? Are you so committed to His purposes that you can say to the death, I will give my last breath fighting against the forces of evil so that God's will might be done. Can you say that with David this morning? Friends, may we be this loyal to God. In our devotion to Him, we must be separated from the wickedness of the world. Paul, he he quotes Leviticus and Isaiah, kind of combines the two. In 2 Corinthians 6, verses 16 through 18, Paul writes, I will make my dwelling among them, 
or this is where he's quoting God, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Because God is holy and must always remain separated from sin, we must also be separated from the wicked of the world in order to walk in obedience to God. John, he echoes this in his letter. He writes in 1 John 2, 15-17, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Praise God that He separates us from the wicked of the world for our own safety, but also for our standing before Him, right? Because As John just makes clear for us, if we are infiltrated by the world, if we have a desire for the world within us, we cannot be accepted by God. The world is passing away, and those who love the world, those who hitch their wagon to the world, they are passing away along with the world. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Praise God that He separates us from the world. James, he echoes this as well. He writes in James 4, 4, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Friend, here this morning, we are in the world. Jesus tells us that in the New Testament. We are in the world, but we cannot be of the world. But praise God that He separates us from the wickedness in the world. To uphold His own holiness, God will separate His people from the wicked. Not geographically, we are still in the world, but God will separate us from within, from the world. God doesn't just separate His people from the wicked around them, however. He also separates them from the wickedness within them from within them. We know David's story. We're all familiar with the the way in which David fell into sin and dominoed further and further and further into sin as he tried to to cover up his own sin. Um, But David knew that too. David, he was not oblivious to his sin. He was very much aware of it himself. So listen to what he confessed to God in Psalm 51 after Nathan confronted him for his sins that he committed uh, with and against Bathsheba. David writes, For I know my transgressions. I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. I cannot forget it. Against you, talking to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David knows he is a great sinner. He knows he messed up. He even goes to the extent of saying, I have done evil in your sight. And then he adds in Psalm 40, For evils have encompassed me, 
beyond number. My evils are beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Have you ever felt like David as he writes those psalms that, that, that your sins are so great in number and so great in their vastness that they are more than the, the, the hairs of your head, more than your ability to count, more than God could redeem you of? David, just like each of us in this room, he was a great sinner. And so that, that, that begs the question, so for someone to be so filled with sin and so filled with wickedness, how could he have confidence that he wouldn't be slayed himself along with those that he mentioned in his prayer? Oh God, slay the wicked. How can he pray that? How can he ask that without him being included in the wicked that he's praying to be slayed? Because he was living in the grace and the promises of God. That's it. That's it. That's the only difference between David and the wicked that he is asking God to slay. Friends, we, like David, cannot separate ourselves from the sin and from the wickedness of the world. And we certainly cannot separate ourselves from the sin that is growing within us. We are truly wretched, and we are left asking the question that Paul asked in Romans 7.24. He says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? This body that is filled to the brim with sin, filled to the brim with wickedness. Paul answers his own question for us in the very next verse. In verse 25, he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, the one who redeems us, the one who removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. We are wicked to our core. But like David, we can have hope. We can have hope because we are living in the grace and the promises of God that were manifested in God's Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Let me remind you of what Pastor Chris read for us from 1 Peter 1, just verses 20 and 21. Peter writes, he was foreknown, foreknown, talking about Jesus, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers of God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. You here in this room this morning, are you in Christ? Is your hope in God? Through faith, we are in Christ. And being in Christ, though our our sin has left a crimson stain, Christ washed us white as snow as we sang just a second ago. On the cross, He took our sins and He gave us His righteousness. That's imputation, right? He he took our sins on the cross so that we could walk away as innocent individuals, still tainted by sin, but covered in His righteousness. Can you say that this morning? Is that where your hope is this morning? By being in Him, by being in Christ, we are made God's sons and God's daughters. We are adopted into His family. Paul writes in Galatians 3, 26-28, For in Christ Jesus, being in Him, being covered by Him, you are all sons of God through faith. 
For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If we have placed our faith in Jesus, the one who did perfectly uphold the law of God, who did not transgress the law of God like each and every one of us did and like David did. If our faith is in Him, we are covered in His righteousness and we are all made one. Us around this room, we are made one, but more importantly, we are made one with Christ. And by being made one with Christ, that's what makes us God's children is because we are united to God's Son. Jesus justifies us. We've already talked this morning about God being just. He must uphold His justice or He is not just. Therefore, because we are wicked, wicked, He must do justice to us. But the good news for us this morning is that He did enact justice, but He did not place His justice on us. He placed it on His Son, Jesus Christ, as He hung upon the cross. Is that your hope this morning? Is that where your hope lies today? If it's not, I pray that it will be. I pray that you'll put your hope in Christ so that you can pray uh, along with David that God would slay the wicked, but at the same time have confidence that you are not included within the wicked because you are redeemed by His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus justifies us But He does not just justify us. He also sanctifies us. He sanctifies us. He removes, over time, He removes the wickedness from within us. We are restored to the holy God of the universe through His holy Son. But God also calls us to be holy. God commanded the people of Israel several times throughout the book of Leviticus, Be holy, for I am holy. Holy. Therefore, David invites God to make him holy, to separate him from his own sin. Listen to what he writes in verses 23 and 24 of Psalm 139. He says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. David, back in the the first three verses of this psalm, he he had already acknowledged uh, that, that God knows him, that God discerns his thoughts, and God searches his heart. But the way in which it was written, though we know that David was still inviting God to do it in that moment, it was written in such a way that God does that for everybody, whether they invite him or not. But now David is inviting God. He is inviting God to do just that, to search out his heart, to search out his thoughts, and to remove all the grievous ways from within him, to bring them to light, and then to kill them. This is so important in the life of the Christian. This is so important for you and I. I would even say that it's one of the clearest marks of a Christian. Are you willing to invite God to search your heart and your thoughts? Are you willing to endure the shame and the feeling of guilt as He reveals your idols to you? 
And are you willing to allow God to place those idols, the things of the world that you're holding on to so tightly, once God reveals them to you, are you willing to allow Him to place them on the stone table and kill them? That is a mark of a Christian. We must be willing to let go of everything that we are holding on to, everything that God says is not holy. It is God who separates, the, uh, separates us from the wickedness within us and makes us holy, but he does this through trying us, through trying us. That's another thing that David invited God to do. He said, try me, O God. And God does this. He tries us through discipline. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, 7 through 14. He writes, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and who we respected. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may be put out of joint but rather may not be put out of joint but rather be healed strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one can see the lord we cannot see the lord without being made holy because in his perfect holiness he must be separated from sin and in our sin we must be separated from God, but God made a way. He covered us with the perfect holiness, the perfect righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ. Our salvation is dependent on our holiness, but this is holiness that we cannot attain. So praise be to God that He is the one who makes us holy through His Son. He makes us holy through His Son. God is holy. God is holy. He is completely and perfectly separated from sin, and He is completely and perfectly devoted to His glory and honor. That means He must separate the wicked from Himself, which apart from His help would include us. But in grace, He sent His Son, Jesus, to, uh, to satisfy His wrath upon the cross for all who would believe. And in Him, being in Christ, we can have hope that our sins are forgiven and that God will work to remove the wickedness from within us until we are perfectly, perfectly made right whenever God creates the new heavens and the new earth and restores all things. What a promise to look forward to this morning. What a promise to behold as we anticipate the holiness of God being upheld and the justice of God being served. This morning I want to leave you with the song of Mr. Beaver from, uh, from the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, 
and the wardrobe. He sings, I'm not going to sing it, but Mr. Beaver sings, Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight, and the sound of his roar, at the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death, and when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Aslan, as we know, he was the picture of Christ in that story. He's the one who laid down his life for those that did not deserve it. But he rose from the grave. And then he led his people into victory over all who opposed them. And more importantly, those who opposed the good God of the universe. We have hope because of him. So let's praise God and go to him in prayer uh, this morning. Father, you are so good. Father, you are holy in all of your ways. You are totally and completely separated from sin, and you are totally and completely devoted to your glory and your own honor. Father, as I have already mentioned and as we have been reminded from your word, Father, you can share your glory with no other. If you could, you would not be God. But God, you perfectly pursue your own glory, you perfectly pursue your own honor, and in grace you have invited us into this story to help you do just that, to serve as your instruments to do just that. Father, we, like David, are filled with sin, we are filled with wickedness, therefore we deserve to be separated from you, but Father, you're gracious and you made a way through your perfect Son. Father, you sent him to earth to take on human flesh, to die upon the cross, to bear our sin and our shame and our consequence, and then allow us to be gifted his righteousness. And Father, because we are covered in his righteousness, we can approach your throne with confidence. And we can pray to you, asking for you to slay the wicked and have confidence that we are not included in that number because of your son, because of your grace. Father, thank you for such grace this morning. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.